This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Essex County's own Miskatonic University. Miskatonic University is famous for its collection of occult books, including one of the very few genuine copies of the Necronomicon. The fighting cephalopods of Miskatonic U always remember, ex ignorantia ad sapientium, ex luce ad tenabras. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, 1987's Hellraiser and 2015's We Are Still Here. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Slash cards. Slash cards. It's been a while since we talked about it, but slash cards is it's a game. It's a lot like Trivial Pursuit, except there's no board. It's just cards with tons of different categories of horror movie questions. Trivia, if you will. Kelsey, what's my question to start the show? Which one of the following films was not adapted from a Stephen King story? Okay. 1983's Something Wicked This Way Comes. No, but keep going. 1986's Stand By Me. Yeah. 1990's Misery. Yeah. Or 2004's Secret Window. Yeah. Yeah. Something Wicked This Way Comes. But do you know who wrote that story? Ray Bradbury. Good going. Yeah. Good good going is what I was going to (laughs) say. And I don't know where that went. (laughs) All right, Kelsey. Oh, I was saying good going, but also good job at the same time. Good gob. (laughs) Kelsey. Yes. Who directed Drag Me to Hell? Was that Sam Raimi? It was. That is correct. Even though we're never going to do that movie? Yeah, you think too much? No, I just, I don't like it. Oh. I okay. don't understand why everyone says it's as good as it is. I've never seen it. You saw it, I didn't see it, and now I will never see it. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kelsey sees more movies than I do. I tend to not see movies without... Kelsey, she sees movies without me all the time, especially now that it's summertime. Mm-hmm. She's going to be watching all sorts of shit without me. <laughs> well, you always see, like, action movies without me, because I could not care less. Right. Yeah. I'll watch those while you're asleep or something like that. Mm-hmm. All right, Kelsey. Yes. First up, our first movie is 1987's Hellraiser, written and directed by Clive Barker, starring Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, and Ashley Lawrence. What is Hellraiser all about? A man opens a box releasing Cenobites, which are demons from another realm, and kind of how people react to that. I don't know. How would you what how would you wrap this up in a sentence? An unfaithful wife encounters the zombie of her dead lover. The demonic Cenobites are pursuing him after he escaped their sadomasochistic underworld. Right? That's intriguing, right? Yes. (laughs) All right, so 
the movie is available tons and tons of places, most notably Netflix, Hulu, and Shudder. If you have a subscription to any of those, you can watch it for free. It's not even that expensive to buy if you wanted to buy it to stream. Should people watch the movie? Yes. Again, this is one of the more... It's funny for me to say this is gruesome because it it's... Really not, especially because of how cheesy it looks now, but... Well, it's gruesome, but not realistic, I think. Yeah. And so, it's... I mean, you have to deal with torture, but... It's far enough removed. It's like on the other side of the Uncanny Valley. There's yes. no confusing this for real life. Yeah. So, it's like proto-torture porn, but it's not. It's not anywhere near, like, the second one. No. Second, well, second one goes full-blown. Second one was dumb. It's I did not like cool. the second one. She goes to hell. It's kind <laughs> of interesting. It's better than the other fucking three... Mo- three uh, that we saw after that? That we saw after yeah. that. <laughs> Listen, it's not a great series, but you get to see Adam Scott be a fop, and that's fun. <laughs> and some people just love this series. It's, like, full of people that are just total dicks. Like, that's... It's it's character base is somebody who's innocent and somebody who's a total dick <laughs> and does that whole like Fifty Shades of Grey thing where it's like but not in a sexy way no <laughs> nothing about my this tastes is sexy. are a bit eccentric or whatever it is that he says in Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> and yeah it's uh, it's about sadomasochism so you need to keep that in mind uh it's a lot of really disturbing things like piercings and cuts and things like that and guts and gore um skeletons and muscles and it's their blood everywhere so if you know you're gonna watch a gory movie and you're okay with that by all means you should watch hellraiser hellraiser is awesome it's dope we love hellraiser But we hate the rest of the series, so, <laughs> so we're not we're not huge Clive Barker fans by any means. Uh, no, I'm, Clive Barker's really great, but nah, I don't know about all of this stuff. So go ahead and watch the movie. We think you should. And when we get back, we'll discuss 1987's Hellraiser. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. He has the power to shock you, to grip you. To take you beyond the limits of earthly terror. Hellraiser, a film by Clive Barker. We have such sights to show you. Rated R. All right, Kelsey, let's talk about what happens in Hellraiser. First, I'd like to remind our listeners that this was a um, recommendation made by a listener of ours. His name is Brian. You can find him on Twitter. His account is Byran the one. So B-I-R-A-N the one. Thank you, Brian. That was yes. really cool. Thank you, Brian. It, um, I'm we, really excited for the chance to watch this movie. We love to get recommendations from our listeners. Now, Hellraiser was already on our list. It was just, it wasn't going to happen for a long time. So we brought it up to next. And then uh, he also recommended uh, The Puppet Master, which I have never seen. Yeah. And it it wasn't on our list. It is now. Um, We'll be watching that in the near future. So thank you very much, Brian. Appreciate it, Brian. All right. So with that in mind, we watched Hellraiser on his suggestion. And what happens, Kelsey? So we open on the famous beginning, an old... What's your pleasure, Mr. Cotton? Yes, an old Chinese man uh, asks 
this guy, what's your pleasure? What's your pleasure, Mr. Cotton? And the box, and uh, so he says, take it, it's yours. It always was. Yeah. Uh So he buys that puzzle box, (laughs) which is called the Lament Configuration, by the way. If you ever hear that, that's what the box is called. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh I feel like there's a lot of, like, undertones here about dimensions and reality and fate. Yes. But none of it's really ever addressed. They don't really address it. I mean, theoretically, the Cenobites come from hell. But theoretically, because that's not what they say. They don't confirm that. They say we come from another dimension of experience or something. Right, but that's like a dimension of sight and sound, like the Twilight Zone, you know? Like it's That's basically what it's And like. I'm pretty sure the, sa- the second one, they full-on say they're going to hell. Right, yeah, she literally goes to hell in the second one, so she almost goes to hell in this one. Yeah. But not quite. Um, all right, so Cotton, Frank Cotton, he buys the Lament configuration from this street vendor in some foreign country, and... Pretty sure it's China. It seems fated that he would buy it. Yes. Uh and he's sitting in his hotel room or wherever he is, some dingy room. Oh, he's, he's back in oh, he's back in America at this point. His parents' home. Right, his mom's home. He solves it and well, quote unquote solve listen, it's not really a puzzle box. You just press they, a button. They turn it like that. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of does the rest of the work for you. And it opens up, you get all these special effects, and then it digs its hooks into him, literally, and then it just tears him apart. Do we actually see that? Not this first time, but I mean, they show his flesh. Right. We go back to the room and we everywhere. see. We see hooks hanging down. We see. Oh, man, I had a name for it. I'll find it in here somewhere when we actually get to it. But it's like the torture log. It's like a, it's like a wood six by six piece of wood uh, spinning around with, with hooks and chains and body parts hanging from it and spinning around. So that's there. And. We see Pinhead, and he finds the pieces of Frank's face, and he puts them back together next to each other like a puzzle. Do you know the names of all of the Cenobites? I do. Can you tell us who they are? Yes. So, the the priest, or the main Cenobite, is... Pinhead. Pinhead. Yes. So, that's the one. Everyone knows his name, but he was actually called, like, the main Cenobite or something like that. Uh, in the script, they oh, all have the lead, the lead Cenobite. Then there's the the chattering Cenobite with or the, the teeth, yeah, or the or, ch- or chatterbox or whatever. He has a few nicknames. Then there's Butterball, the fat one, yeah, with the um. That's just a dude in a fat suit. He doesn't actually, yeah. His his mouth is all peeled. His mouth, back. no. He doesn't have any lips. No, right? his, his mouth and his eyes are sewn shut. Oh, Chatterbox has no lips. Yeah, and Chatterbox has, has no lips. Yeah, uh-huh. And then the female Cenobite is her name. She doesn't actually... She doesn't have a name. No. I mean, technically, Pinhead's name is just Lead Cenobite. So, like, they get names that are... They're, they're like colloquial terms, but officially, it's Lead Cenobite, Female Cenobite, Chattering Cenobite, and Butterball Cenobite. Okay. Yeah. But we see them walking around, and Pinhead puts together Frank's face again. And then all of a sudden, everything... It's back to normal. Disappears. They go back into the box. Mm Mm-hmm. So, next, it's present day. What we'll refer to as present day. Yeah, we don't know how much time passes here. Yeah. So, it's Frank's brother. And what is his name? His name is Larry. Larry and his wife, Julia. And Larry is Frank's brother. 
show up at this house because they're moving into it. It belonged to their mom. Frank would never let him get rid of the place or anything like that. But now Frank's gone missing. He has no idea where he is. So they're just taking the house. Yes. And he finds it in this utter disgusting, like there's bugs everywhere. There's maggots. There's, it looks like a homeless person was squatting there basically. And he just automatically, Larry knows uh, it was Frank. Frank was here. And when she hears Frank, she goes, he's here. Is he coming back? (laughs) And why is she so interested, Chris? Because Julia had an affair with Frank because he was intense. So Frank is like the the Mr. Grey, whatever the dude's name is from Fifty Shades of Grey, where he's sexy and he's very sexualized. He has this huge libido and he always wants more. He always wants more. At one point, he even tells her that... It's, it's just not enough. enough. It's never enough. He needs mo- he needs to experience great pleasure. And so what they don't outright say, but they might as well, they say a lot of stuff, is that nothing pleasurable pleases him enough, so he needs to go in the other direction to find pleasure, which is via pain, mm-hmm. um, which is effectively what masochism is about, right? He's not a sadist so much as he's a masochist. But I don't think he enjoyed himself when well, not, the no. Cenobites came. That's, that's about taking it too far. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, uh, he was looking for it. He was looking for the weird shit. Mm-hmm. And so we get we get these flashbacks throughout the movie. We'll kind of – I mean, there's no point in stringing it along. Right. He, he has an affair with her for many years. No. It's just once. No, it's repeatedly. It's multiple times. What makes you think that? Because there are multiple flashbacks. No, she's constantly interrupted, but it's all just one flashback. Okay. I will take your word for that. I believe you. Uh, So, but it's not enough or what have you. So he goes off and he lives his weird transient life from there. And he just keeps going further and further and further until he hears about the lament configuration and how that may give him the pleasure and pain that he seeks. And... He gets more than he bargains for. The Cenobites show up and they torture him like crazy, thinking that this is the way they unlock these pleasure centers in him and they just rip him to shreds. So that's what happens to Frank before the movie. Right. And Julia and Larry are moving into this house and she gets these flashbacks originally because she finds where he was sleeping in this attic room. And these and it's, pictures. Yeah, of him and this other all woman. All these women. And she ends up keeping one of those pictures. She puts them, yeah, she puts all of them in her pocket. Well, it's one in particular. It's, she takes the one that's just him looking straight at the camera and it's very clean. They're not in the middle of sex or anything like that. She takes that one and puts that one in her pocket. What you're led to believe is that she has these desires as well, but she doesn't feel comfortable enough with them to say, you know, to her husband who, you know, who knows? He could fulfill that for her, but it also seems very much like she has kind of a rape fantasy because very much she was saying no to Frank. Yeah. And he just kept going, and then she totally enjoyed herself. So I think she's got kind of that fantasy going on. I think she's definitely a masochist. I guess they're just both sadomasochists. I don't know. No, I don't. They don't really go into the finer details of the relationship. We just know that there's 
pain and aggression and it's angry, violent sex, basically. Yeah, and it was amazing for her, but it's not enough for him. And she's never had anything like that from Larry. Larry is the complete opposite of Frank. He is mild-mannered, kind. He's a stand-up guy. Sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah, very gentlemanly. And he has a daughter from a previous marriage named Kirsty. Mm-hmm. She calls during this scene and says that, oh, um, she found a place nearby. And he's like, you don't need to find a place. And she's like, yes, I do. And he's like, come on, you've made your gesture. You can come live with us. And she's like, it's not a gesture. Uh, she really means it. She needs to make it on her own. So she needs to find a job. She's found a place. And she needs both of those before she's going to come visit. But that happens fairly quickly. And she comes and she visits them. That's when she walks in on Julia and Julia pockets the mm-hmm. the the photograph. This is also when we find out about the affair with Frank. Mm-hmm. During the move, Larry cuts his hand on a nail trying to get the sofa bed. or bed. There's a bed. You're right. It's a big mattress. And pulling it up the stairs with the movers. Which is a little, it's a little ridiculous. It's not that hard to get a bed up the stairs. And you know what, Kelsey? <laughs> what? I've had to do it multiple times while you guided us. <laughs> I've helped before. It's difficult. Uh, and with the state of disrepair that this house is in, there's just this nail sticking out, which is also a little ridiculous. It like it looks like somebody just took a nail and just hit it in a couple times. Yeah. What was the point of the nail even there? Anyway, it doesn't matter. He cuts himself and he is bleeding profusely. Now he obviously has some sort of blood phobia. He's gonna throw up, he's gonna faint, but he's bleeding. Everywhere, and they need to take him to Get the hospital. Stitches. Yeah, he says, "You know me in blood. I think I'm going to faint." And as they leave, we see that blood gets absorbed into the wood floor of that attic room. And now let's be clear here: the attic is really the third floor. Yeah, but it's the floor that's underneath the the uh, the, the the roof. So it has the angled ceilings and stuff like that. There's more than one room up here on this third floor. But throughout the rest of the movie, we'll be calling it the attic room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the yeah, the blood gets absorbed into the wood. And while they're actually at the hospital, we see this obviously a puppet. And in some cases, it's a dude with makeup and prosthetics and stuff like that. But in most of the case, it's a puppet. This gory corpse... With no legs. It's pretty grotesque. Rising from the floor. And a lot of this is a really great effect. It's kind of the opposite effect of what we see with the melting face in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they take something that's probably made of wax or something similar, make it look the way they want it to look, and then they melt it down, and then they run that in reverse. So that's the effect you're getting of this thing just coming up from the floor Mm -hmm. uh, and, and forming itself. And it is not a complete body, but it's a really great effect obviously fake it's not gonna fool you but it's really kind of cool and uncanny i think they did a really good job of that now see my question here is yes so every time the cenobites kill someone if any blood gets on that floor the person can come back yeah they're not clear about this (laughs) like how long (laughs) exactly you know like No blood fell on the floor. Of course, we don't know how long it's been since the lament configuration has been used. Yeah. There isn't a lot of logic to be found here. Right. It's supernatural. What's also really weird is that this is obviously Frank. He comes back 
with the lament configuration. We find out later that when the box is used and it's just left, it doesn't stay where it is, right? So they in the beginning, we see the Cenobites and, and Pinhead puts it back together and and they disappear from the room. And then when Frank comes back, he comes back with the box. It's really, they don't explain that. Yeah. But you know what? That's what gets this moving. And it's okay because it's, it's what gets us to the action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So that night or the next night or probably uh, very shortly thereafter, uh, they end up having a dinner party in their new place. And Julia, who is... I mean, she's, what's the term you would use for her? She's very reserved, guarded, stone-faced. I mean, I don't want to call her a bitch. Later on, I would be willing to call her a bitch. But right now, she's just, like, not interacting with any of the people. She's not having very much fun. She hasn't been happy with Larry ever since she slept with Frank. Because all she's wanted ever since then is Frank. And so nothing Larry does could possibly be enough. Right, but then she's like just a total bitch to him. Yeah. Like all the time. And to Christy, Kirsty. Uh, yeah, we know they're having problems. Larry says so. Right. So she can she excuses herself from the table. In the middle of dinner. Right. She doesn't even wait to get to dinner. She's hosting. Right. And she goes up to the attic because that's where Frank was staying and that's where that's where she feels Frank his presence or whatever. And at the, it's at this point that she's grabbed by the leg by the corpse. She screams and nobody hears her. But it's revealed that this corpse is Frank. Well, it, they don't hear her because they're having a loud, um, uproarious dinner. They're right. drinking and Larry's telling, being pretty funny. Everyone's yeah. really enjoying him. Larry's and, telling his story about going to the doctor and yeah, how the doctor uh-huh. was like Dr. Mengel. <laughs> yeah. So Frank begs Julia for help. He needs help. Blood. And at this point, yeah, Frank explains that the blood brought him back and he needs more if he's going to heal all the way. At this point, he's kind of just a torso with arms and a face, no skin, barely defined facial features. Like, it's it's really gory. Yeah, he says, don't look at me. Yeah, but he needs her help. And Kirsty is headed upstairs as well. I don't know if we know why, but before she gets very far. She's a little drunk, I think she's just going up to, like, wash her, like, sprinkle her face to get more uh sober or whatever. But she might hear what's going on upstairs. So there's this danger that they might be discovered at this point. But before she can go up there, Steve, the young man who's at this dinner party inexplicably, who's totally into her, Kirsty, ends up stopping her and they go out together. They go out on the town. Yeah, well, I'd like to talk about this guy. Okay. So at dinner, and I have no idea who he is, how he's related to these they people. They do not say. Um, he, like, puts a cigarette in his mouth and then takes it out, and she thinks that's really hot. And then he goes yeah, to Yeah, like, pour- she totally, like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he goes to pour her wine, and she's like, I'm not going to be able to stand up. Don't give me any more. And he goes, so lay down. <laughs> and everyone at the table, including her father, laughs uh-huh. at this joke. And it's just like, what? Larry's happy to see his daughter maybe getting laid <laughs> later. Oh, my I God. I guess. I don't know. But um, they go out on the town. And they see a weird homeless man who watches them. 
Yeah, this weird homeless man just staring at them. And they stop at one point and they just start making out. Mm-hmm. So, we get more flashbacks of Julia and Frank. He says, anything? And she says, anything. <laughs> anything? Anything. That's when we see Julia go to the attic and tell Frank she'll do it. Mm-hmm. She'll help him. Because she remembers that moment that she promised him she was willing to do anything. While she's out, apparently she takes Steve back to her place, uh, Kirsty. It's very unclear. It's very strange. When they have them, she's having a dream. She has a nightmare about, like, um feathers and wings and yeah, a baby so crying and we see bloody this, body. We see her in this room and there's like goose down feathers in the air floating around everywhere. There's what appears to be a corpse under a sheet completely white and we hear crying. This is going to be a, a consistent motif. It comes back. And then the corpse starts bleeding and so the blood is seeping through and she removes the sheet and her dad... All fucked up, sits up, and she freaks out and screams um, in her sleep. And Steve wakes up. And they're in separate beds. He's, like, on the floor, I think. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, that's why I think it's her place. She's in the bed, he's on the floor. And then he, like, wakes her up. I don't know if it's because just it's, like, a single bed or whatever, you know, and he can't fit comfortably, or he's just being polite. Or perhaps I'm they didn't maybe, have sex right, the no, very first night they met. That's what I'm thinking. That's probably <laughs> what happened. But then why didn't he leave? I don't know. But he wakes her up. She needs to make a call to check on her dad because she's worried about him now that she had this dream. He says, I've never been better. And then they exchange I love yous. And when Larry tells Julia who it was on the phone in the middle of the night, Frank, who's peering out the attic room door, hears... That Kirsty called. He hears Kirsty's name and is like, Kirsty. He remembers his sweet niece, Kirsty, which is really weird. So, Kelsey, tell me, hmm. what is it that Julia is agreeing to do specifically? So, he needs blood. Yeah. So, she's basically going to bring him men that they'll, they're going to kill. Yeah. For their blood. So she does this multiple times, but she goes out to a bar and she picks up men looking the most stern, sexy, straight out of the 80s. Like straight if I tell you that. Straight out of the 80s. If I tell you that 80s, stern, sexy, you know what I'm talking Did about. Did you notice that her hair, the more evil she became, it got higher and higher? Did yeah. you notice that? Mm-hmm. Like Brigitte Nielsen from Rocky Four, you know, the short cropped hair. Shoulder pads, looking clean, wearing a pantsuit or a, yeah. or a she gets, suit skirt. She gets more and more angular the more yeah. evil she becomes. That's a good observation. That's, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't think about that at the time, but now that you say that, that's totally true. They give her the the sunglasses, sunglasses yep. uh, the, the shoulder pads, the mm-hmm. hair goes higher and higher. Yeah, she becomes more and more... I guess angular is and the right she's, word. She's in this really weird bar. <laughs> looks like it's a, a In the museum, middle of a mall? Like a showroom. It's stark white walls with nothing on them <laughs> and people hanging out. And it's obviously a bar. Yeah. There's a bar back and everything, but it's like all stark white. So she takes him home and she's really nervous. Yeah. She doesn't right? want to do it at first. And so this dude, he starts like 
grabbing her and manhandling her. her and she resists. And he's like, what? You're not going to change your fucking mind, are you? And then she goes, no. That's what you brought me here for, isn't it? What is it? I suppose so, yes. So what's your problem? Let's get on with it. You can't change your fucking mind, are you? I'm sorry. Let's go upstairs. Okay. Yeah, no. Let's no. do this. All right then. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Now I have the confidence I need because you're being a dickhole. <laughs> I don't feel bad about this anymore. Exactly. She takes him up to the attic room. They start to get undressed and she just fucking murders him with a hammer. Yeah. Like multiple hits to the head with a hammer. Yeah. And Frank comes out and he starts to consume this body somehow. He tells her again, don't they, look at me. Yeah, they kind of show you, like, he every time he kind of, like, digs his hand into their neck, but that's kind of all they show you. It's very right. odd. And when you come back and see the corpses, they're, like, they're, there's no skin on they're them, like, and it's, they're, like, they're shriveled up. Shriveled husks. up. Yeah, so he is taking all their blood, but they're still bloody husks at the end. All you need to know is that he's absorbing them, he's right? He's becoming more and more human. Exactly, Yeah. So she and leaves. She's, she's like grossed out by him at this point because right. now he, all you can see are like his tendons and yeah, shit. Uh-huh. And, but all of a sudden now he like wants her to look at him. She goes to clean herself. And when she comes back, um, the man is missing his skin and Frank is standing now. He got his legs from this one dude and he gets more whole with more blood. But he's That's super obviously, gross looking now. Yes. You can see the bone and the tendons of, of his face. They do a really good job of that. It doesn't look like a big mask that's bigger than a human's head is. Really, it's really just makeup, job. I think. I yeah. think prosthetics. And she's really grossed out by him, but he forces her to let him touch her. And you can tell she's like, oh, God, get it off of me. And then her and then Larry comes home and she's able to get out of the room. Yeah, it's also here that, that Frank reveals that he just needs one or two more at this rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got the, the blood originally, which brought him back, and then he gets this one body, and now he's standing. He just needs, like, one or two more, and then he'll be whole again. Then he says, then they can get, a, they can get away before, quote-unquote, they can follow. And we know them to be the Cenobites. And so, like, Larry's coming home, so she has to quickly clean up. She grabs the corpse, and we have no idea where she puts it. They just don't show us. <laughs> what do you do with a corpse like that? Yeah. So we see, we do find out eventually that she just goes to the other attic room and stores them in there. Because oh. because we stumble upon the body, uh, one of the bodies later on. Oh. And we do see her carry carry a body at one point, I don't remember which murder it is, into one of the other rooms. So uh, she's storing them elsewhere in the house, just these dead bodies, which are surely going to stink the place up. <laughs> Meanwhile, Larry is like wondering what she's doing. And she's like, oh, I'm really sick. And he's like, oh, what can I do? I'll do anything you need. Yeah, that's the second That's the second killing. He's so sweet yeah. to her. He's like, oh, is there anything I can do for you? And she's like, maybe a brandy? And and he gets her the brandy. And, and as she's drinking the brandy, she kind of like smiles like she's beginning to enjoy this. Either it is the killing or the thought that they're getting closer and closer to bringing Frank back. 
I think it's they're both. Not, they're not explicit about that. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it's both. So now that you say that, maybe she is a little bit of a sadist as well. I don't right. know. Yeah. So there's something that I've been kind of been sitting on and I didn't know when to bring it up. And I was going to wait until the next time we brought up sadism. Uh-huh. So I'm going to do it now. Okay. I have a story about this movie. Okay. This is actually, this movie is how I found out about sadism and masochism. Yeah. Uh, I did not know that was a thing until I saw this movie. So I saw this movie when I was mm, 12 years Too old. Too young to watch this movie. 12 yeah. years mm-hmm. old. Uh, and I had never seen anything as graphic as this and as yeah. awful as this. Because my friend Jesse, hi Jesse, if you're listening, uh, she's the one that convinced me we needed to watch this movie. Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget, we were sitting in her mom's room, watching in her mom's tiny little TV in her bedroom. <laughs> that has got to make it even more gruesome. <laughs> so we're sitting up really close to it because it's a tiny TV. Yeah. There, there's a there's a video on YouTube. You should look it up. It's by this guy called H Bomber Guy, and he tells a story about uh, the importance of VHS scan lines. And it, it's a really great example of, like, the kind of effect that has on media watching when we were the age where that was the only way to watch this stuff. Mm-hmm. So this movie terrified me when I was 12. Yeah. Right? It doesn't now. I it It's, it's not. not. Once you've seen it before and you're an adult, yeah. it's not really scary. It doesn't look very realistic. Right. Uh-huh. Not to say that it doesn't look great. Yeah. Because it does. But it doesn't look realistic. Right. But when I was 12 years old, oh, my God, this I had never seen anything like this. And the very beginning of the film is so centered on the box and why he wants the box and everything. And I am one of those people that needs to understand every aspect of something. Right. And I was just like, Jesse, why would anyone want this box? And she was like, well, he's probably into S&M. What is S&M? Well, you know, people paying for pleasure. And I was like, I kind of understand that. And I was like, but, like, so he thinks he wants this, but then they put hooks through him. Like, you know, this is stupid. No one would actually want this. And she's like, Kelsey, people actually do this. Right, this is a real thing. They hang themselves from ceilings with... Yep. With hooks and stuff. Through their skin and, yeah. Uh I was broken for, like, a month after Uh that because I had to process this idea that there are people in this world Mm -hmm. who, for a good time, will put hooks in their skin. Sometimes for art. I... My little 12-year-old mind just (laughs) exploded after this film. A whole new world. Yeah. So... (laughs) This movie taught me about a whole new side of sexuality that I yeah. had no clue about. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so what we what we haven't talked about yet is that uh, Kirsty found a job, and she works at a pet store. And while she's there, she sees that same homeless man again, mm-hmm. and she's like, "What are you doing?" Go ahead. This is the most janky ass pet store I've ever seen. It's just cages piled on top of cages. Mm-hmm. All kinds of animals. There's monkeys and exotic birds and just everything in this tiny little cramped space. I'm like, does this exist? Is this oh, a real sure, place? Yeah. Especially in the 80s, yeah. Jesus. Uh, and she she goes to see what he's doing because he has kind of his back to her and he has his hand inside like the cricket terrarium 
and he pulls it out and it's just covered in crickets. And then he shoves them into his mouth and starts eating them. And she's like, get out. Oh, God. Yeah, she kicks him out of the store. And that's kind of like the end. Oh, we're like, oh, man, this homeless guy. What's his story? He's coming from outside this whole experience. Who's he? What is his story? And we'll come back to him later. (laughs) So meanwhile, back at the house, Julia demands an explanation for what's going on. What happened to him? Why this is happening now? How he's coming back? How, like, why they're killing people? This is when he reveals that he has the box. And he explains... It opens the door to pain and pleasure, indivisible. (laughs) And then we see him get strung up by the Cenobites, and it's implied that the box lets Julia see that because she kind of recoils off of it, right? Like she gets a little glimpse of what happened to Frank, and it's terrifying to her. (laughs) But maybe a little exciting? Mm Mm-hmm. So (laughs) at this point, two bodies down... They, they need to, like, get him in clothes. <laughs> so they put, like, Frank is wearing some of Larry's clothes, like pants and a shirt. He grabs her by the shirt. He's still covered in blood. And he grabs her by the white shirt. He's wearing a button-up. And it's like, people are so careless around all this blood <laughs> with their clothes. And you do see at one point that the blood is just seeping through the clothes that he's wearing, which I thought was uh, was pretty cool. I wrote down, Jesus, people, you're dealing with blood. This is when Larry hears something upstairs and... Okay, now I know where we are. Because my notes, none of this is in my notes. (laughs) Now I know where we are. Julia tries to stop Larry from going upstairs. And how does she do that? She tells him that she is afraid of the thunder at first. Yeah, and then she gets all, like, sexy with him. Then she tries to, like, yeah, hook up with him. He insists on seeing what's going on. He's into it, but he's like, baby, I gotta go check what it is. Right. So they go to the attic room. And we're like, oh, man, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And Larry just chalks it up to must be rats because they know there are rats here. And then we cut to a shot that Larry can't see. It's two rats still alive nailed into the wall. And they're making squeaking noises. And it's, yeah, pretty gruesome. Um, so he just assumes that it's rats. And then they go ha- go and start to have sex. And we found out where Frank was. <laughs> He was in the closet in their bedroom, mm-hmm. and he comes out of the closet, and he has a, a, a like a knife, a switchblade, and he approaches them, and Julia starts freaking out. She's like, I can't bear it. Please don't. And as far as Larry knows, she's talking to, to this him. This is like the one time that she is redeemable. Yeah, she doesn't want Larry to die. Yeah. We can find another body. It doesn't have to be Larry. she genuinely likes Larry. Look, she just wants to leave him for Frank. She mm-hmm. doesn't want him dead. Yeah. And so, and so Frank takes out another rat. Yeah. And he just cuts it open and like flips the skin down and she's still freaking out and he walks backwards into the shadows and Larry's like gets up and he's all confused and he's like, What's going on? You were totally into this a second ago. Yeah, but one stops. minute you're all over me and the next minute you're not. He's angry, which is a bit of a dick move, but he stops. So, I mean, so far, Larry, like, stand-up dude. Right. 
Like, he's really great. <laughs> I mean, he's, I mean, he's kind of he's allowed boring. to be angry because it's probably been a long time since he's had sex. Right. He's probably not, a he, very long time. He doesn't try to force her or anything. Yeah. He's just totally into it because she gets him into it. Yeah, it's like, hey, you're the one that started this and now all of a sudden you're telling him you can't bear really? it? Okay. What he wants really is an explanation. He's not trying to continue it. Right, no. He's just he like, totally what's, what's going on? Are you okay? Anyway, Larry goes out to dinner with... Kirsty, and he says, I'm really worried about Julia. What's going on? She never wants to leave the house. It's like she's waiting for something. Yeah, Brooklyn wasn't worse than this. Maybe we shouldn't have come back. Right. And so he asks Kirsty, you know what? I'm always at work. Maybe you could stop by sometime. You don't, you work retail, you work different hours. You could just come by and keep her company, have a conversation. Like I said, she never leaves the house. It's like she's waiting for something. Maybe you can hang out with her. Back in the house, Julia begs Frank not to kill Larry. Like, begs him. So, what does that mean? She has to go get somebody else. She has to find somebody else. So, she she finds somebody else, and Kirsty hears her attack the man this time from yeah, outside. because Kirsty has come over to see her. Right. And so, she breaks in. Um, meanwhile... Because she needs to deal with Kirsty, or she needs to hide or something. Frank ends up finishing the man off. And Julia uh, leaves the room. Kirsty goes upstairs and she finds in the room, she doesn't run into Julia. She runs into Frank and the body. And he traps her in the room. And we've got the famous line, it's Uncle Frank come to daddy. Yeah. Kirsty, it's Frank. It's Uncle Frank. No. You remember. No. Come to daddy. Get the some things have to be endured, and that's what makes the pleasure so sweet. I love her response. Get the fuck off of me. Yes. <laughs> Don't touch me. <laughs> yes. And he says, you've grown, you're beautiful, and it's so creepy and gross. Yeah. So she finds the box. At first, she's just going to throw it at him. Right. But he freaks out. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, oh, God. No, no, don't do that. And then that's how she knows it's important. So instead of throwing it at him, what does she do? You want it? Fucking have it! And then throws it out the window. <laughs> right, she throws it out the window. And then she runs away because he's freaking out. And on her way out, she grabs the box and she runs. She's running and running and running. Nuns look at her funny as she's obviously exhausted because it's a little jump forward in time. And she's like, uh, uh. And the nuns turn around and they're looking at her funny. She's walking slowly down the street, slightly bloodied, disheveled. Yeah, like, has she gone insane at this point? Right. She. Well, I mean, what do you expect? Right, because she doesn't understand what's going on with Frank. Exactly. Uh, she collapses, and a bunch of strangers come to her aid, and they take her to the hospital. And... And we have another insane hospital scene. I, I just, I don't get it. Do horror movies really think hospitals are like this, or do the, or is it meant to just be creepy because it's a horror movie? It 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 just always happens. Have you noticed this? Yeah. Every fucking time uh -huh. a hospital is in a movie, in a horror movie, and I'm not talking about an insane asylum. I'm talking about no. a regular old hospital. Like in American Werewolf in London and They yeah, are uh -huh. always fucking bizarre and never run the way a hospital is run. Right. And X-ray and oh my yeah. God. <laughs> So we see shot more shots of Frank intercut with slow motion or actually fast motion footage of flowers blooming. 
And then what we see is that the nurse is watching a TV in her room of flowers against a black background blooming. What was she watching? What? Why? I don't know. But doctor comes in and says that the police are going to want to uh, talk with her. Why? Why? Because she's covered in blood. And it's not her blood. What's this? Right. It's a box? The box. And so he leaves it with her. Yells like, at her, get back in bed. He says, you were holding on to onto this like grim death. That's the doctor's line. You were holding on to it like grim death. Hopefully it'll jog your memory. And it's like, dude, grim death in a hospital? You're a doctor. You should know better than that. And then he locks her in the room. Like, it's just, it is so. So oh, she. Oh my God. Yeah, it's it's a little, you know, it preys on people's fear of hospitals and doctors, but it's very inconsistent with reality. Um, so Especially then, with the nurse and the TV and then the doctor being all weird and, yeah. Exactly, uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. It's x-ray again. <laughs> people who make horror movies have never been to a hospital. <laughs> anyway, so then... We get this weird scene where she's like sitting on the bed and like mesmerized yeah, by the box. She's gotta figure out what's going on with this box. Meanwhile, and there's yeah, <laughs> there's things floating up out of the box, like so cheesy looking. <laughs> so all of those graphics were done by hand, frame by frame. Uh, by this artist that Clive Barker hired over the course of a weekend. Just the two of them spent a weekend together drinking and painting on these cells, which is why it looks so cheesy, because they didn't have any budget anymore. They just needed to do it over the course of a weekend. They just locked themselves in a room and just did this and got wasted and had fun. Yeah, anyway, so it does look very cheesy. That's why it looks animated, because it literally is animated by hand on every <laughs> frame of that. So anyway, she solves the box. And it opens up this door in the hospital room. Why would you walk down this hallway? It's this weird, dank, <sighs> foggy hallway, and there's a baby crying. She walks down this dark hallway, and then all of a sudden there's this weird baby scorpion flesh monster thing that's screaming and it comes chasing her down the hall and you can totally see the dolly behind yeah, it uh-huh. you can tell that it's supposed to be like it's supposed to be like coming at her um with its front legs on the sides of the walls and it's like it's bent in such a way that its back legs are also crawling right but, but you it looks can like tell a kind of thing. it's just a person yeah standing that, there using that. his arms it's really bad oh my god but this terrified me when i was well 12. no it like comes at her yes and it's almost like you know in the in the oubliette that's exactly what with i the thought cleaners the cleaners yeah it's, it's it just labyrinth. it just comes at her and so she's running down the hallway and she gets out and the door closes behind her we don't we don't see what closes the door but it does and she can still hear the monster and it's just behind there. So this is when there's tons of light, there's wind, things break, and then we get the Chatterer, and then we get the rest of the Cenobites, who call themselves Pinhead's the only one who talks. Oh, no, that's not true. The Lady Cenobite does have a line later on. Um, the box. You opened it. We came. The box. <laughs> you opened it. He's so great. Yes. I fucking love Pinhead. He calls themselves uh, Ex- 
explorers in the further reaches of experience, mm-hmm. demons to some, angels to others. Explorers in the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. And Kirsty promises, you know what, you're missing somebody, aren't you? I can lead you to him. And he's like, oh, so what if we were, you know, like, I can lead you to him. This is when the lady Cenobite says, if you betray us, and then Pinhead finishes and says, we'll tear your soul apart. But if you need us, we'll tear your soul apart. I also like that the lady uh, Cenobite says, perhaps we prefer you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Instead of Frank. But it's like, no. I know what's going on here. It's a bigger deal that he got away. Yeah. No one gets away from you guys, right? So how she understands all this? I mean, obviously they have this obsession with taking people. They don't yeah, just let I mean, people go. Like you could put it together, but I I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. So it's at this point that Frank and Julia are super desperate, right? Because it obviously wasn't enough. They've had three bodies now. And he said two or three more or whatever. Well, it turns out it's three more. So, and Kirsty knows now. So they're really desperate. And so. I think at this point he's realized that he's not going to get skin. Right. And so instead, we don't see it. But Larry comes home. Next thing we know, Frank has taken Larry's body. The boy, Steve. Yeah, Steve. He is out looking for Kirsty. He ends up going to the hospital, but she's already gone by yeah. this point. And we see Frank and Julia, sorry, Larry Frank and Julia having sex. So they, she finally gets the sex that she wants. Mm-hmm. Kirsty shows up at the house. She demands to see her dad. And then Larry comes out, but he's all bloody around the scalp line and everything. But she doesn't seem to notice that. It doesn't matter because she tells Larry everything about Frank and and... Frank's like, I know, honey. I, I had to take of care of it. He was like a mad dog, and I had to put him down. Exactly, yeah. So that explains why he's all bloody, you know, and disheveled and all of that. But really, we know that Larry, from here on out, is just Frank. Larry's dead. Sorry, people, he doesn't come back. And she's just like, uh, I don't believe this. I need to see him. And he's like, okay. So he takes her up there. To the attic room, and then closes the door behind her. And that's when the Cenobites appear and they see there's the remains of Larry on the floor and Pinhead demands to see the man that left the remains, right? Who is responsible for this, basically? And Kirsty doesn't know that Larry is Frank. Right. She knows that he's acting weird, right. but she's still like, no, he's my dad and you can't have him. And the last thing that she knows is Frank was this bloody skinless thing Mm -hmm. and now that's on the floor Mm -hmm. and larry her father said i had to put him down so she thinks larry her dad is outside this room frank is dead on the floor they want larry for killing frank they wanted frank back and now he's dead who's responsible for killing frank is what she thinks they're asking they're really asking is Frank killed this man. Where is he? But mm-hmm. they don't ask it that way. Mm-hmm. They ask who's responsible for this. They want that person. Um, she has no idea that that's her dad dead on the floor. So she runs away. And then Julia grabs her. Well, Frank says, come to daddy. No, that's after. 
well, at she first, yeah. she's running because she wants to save her dad. And Julia grabs her and is, like, smiling. And it's just like, at this point, she still thinks he's her dad. Why would you attack uh, right. her at And they don't point? know that the Cenobites are in the room. Right. Right. So. It's really weird. Yeah. It, it That's that's a little inconsistency in the storyline, the confused storyline here. But she gets away from Julia and Frank's, and she's like trying to leave. And Frank Larry is like, no, don't go. We're just one big happy family. Come to daddy. And then that's how she knows, oh, fuck, it's Frank. So Julia grabs her again. But she like scratches skin off of his cheek. Yeah. She like rips it and there's marks on his cheek and like skin flaps are like hanging down and Julia grabs her. And Frank having that knife from earlier comes out and he approaches her and it's not clear. This is my theory. He goes to attack Kirsty, and Kirsty gets out of the way. Yeah. And he stabs Julia. That's exactly what happens. Yeah, but I it, it seemed like there's no hesitation. There's no, wait, what happened? He doesn't go after Kirsty. Oh, he it's doesn't almost, care. I know. It's almost like he intended to stab Julia the entire time, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's like, oh, I stabbed Julia. Well, she's disposable anyway. Yeah, he never cared about Julia. He was using her, and she was good to have around for as long as he needed her. Right. And he accidentally stabs her, and he's like, ah, fuck it. And he just kind of leaves and her there. She's no, not dead yet. He puts his hand into her her neck, oh. and she goes, not me! And he goes, nothing personal, baby. Oh, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Um, I'm focusing on Kirsty, but she doesn't die yet at this point. He goes after Kirsty. She hides in one of the other attic rooms. This is when she finds one of the bodies and it's all all the maggots and stuff all in it and everything like that. And she uh, freaks out. It spills maggots like on her. Like they all come spilling down. And so she leaves the room and completely oblivious to the fact that she was hiding from Frank, Larry. She's just like crying over the banister and the door opens to that that attic room and frank's there now apparently the cenobites had left or something because they don't grab him when he goes into that room another inconsistency in the storyline he comes at her with a knife and they kind of maneuver she gets away she runs away and he chases her uh into the the room room. and it's at this point that he tells her everything right he tells her what he did Um, He escaped, he killed these men to get back, you know, all that. This is when the Cenobites appear. And they needed to hear it from his mouth. From his lips. From his lips. And so he confessed, which is a big part of the whole religious imagery, confession. And confession is related to torture. Torture to get a confession. It's torture for pain. It's this weird rat's nest of concepts um, at one point, like I said, Pinhead was called the priest, and they have these very like I mean, we didn't like even leather talk, priest outfits on. We didn't even talk about the fact that Larry and Frank's mother was apparently very religious because when they first walk in, there's all kinds of religious iconography everywhere. Right, yeah, and at one point, she, um, Kirsty, like opens a door or something, and a Jesus pops out. Yeah. That is the only time watching this now for the what I don't know millionth time I've seen it. I literally jumped. Yeah. When we watched it the other night, I was like, ah, oh, it was Jesus. Now all the accoutrements come out. 
hooks and on chains and the spinning gore log. That's what I called it. I called it the gore log. Come out. They needed to hear it from his lips. He needed to confess. And they string him up. And we get this really iconic effect of him hanging there. His entire body is hanging from these chains that are coming from everywhere. And they're all around his face, peeling his facial skin back. Kind of like that scene in Doctor Who of the of the the last living human in the future at the end of the universe and it's just like skin and a face it's kind of like that but not as not as uh crazy and I literally top. have no idea what you're talking about it's it's in that season it's Doctor in one of the, it's, it's in the Christopher Eccleston season yeah oh i don't remember that yeah. um it also reminded me of brazil it also reminded right. me of uh, eyes without a face yeah now it's at this point that it was scripted that he say Fuck you to Kirsty. Really? Yeah, but the actor convinced him instead to say Jesus wept. Uh, and then he starts chuckling. Jesus wept. <laughs> it's at this point that he's ripped apart and we get this jump cut to the body exploding. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, iconic. The Cenobites then... Go after Kirsty. He also licked his lips and it was really yeah, gross. Yeah, uh-huh. But the Cenobites go after Kirsty again and she's running. Like, they, they're they like, yeah, you gave us him, but maybe we want you too. Which is interesting before, because before they even did it, they said, this is not for your eyes. And then she just stood there. And after everything happened, then Pinhead says, we have such sights to show you. And she says, go to hell. We have such sights to show you. And pushes in the box. Right. Yeah. She's like, no, no, don't do that. He says to her. And she says, go to hell. We see some emotion on Pinhead's uh, face a little bit there. She she goes to solve the cube. She turns it into a different configuration. And he disappears. We get more of the animated yellow lightning effect. And the house starts falling apart. Uh, Earlier... When she was running from them, we didn't mention this, but she finds Julia strapped to the bed with her face peeled back by more hooks and chains. That happened at some point. That's probably why they were not in the room to get Frank is because they went after Julia instead. That would explain that inconsistency, but it will also explain why Julia is all strapped up to this bed. Now she's dead Mm -hmm. officially. And then she keeps like... Solving it a little bit more, and each step banishes one of them. I don't understand why the lead Cenobite Pinhead would disappear first. Right. But he does. <laughs> um, Steve shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy who who likes Kirsty, he actually shows up at the house, and the house is falling apart. He's about to get attacked by Butterball, but part of the house collapses on him and, and prevents that from happening. They open the door and are relieved until that baby scorpion flesh monster appears as well (laughs) and chases them back inside. She drops the box and goes to grab for it as its arms, its weird bony but still flesh covered arms are like trying to grab onto hers while she's trying to get the box. And so they're like fighting Their hands are outstretched and fighting against each other. Um, She finally solves that very last step and it disappears. The whole house is destroyed. It's rubble. And they're standing in the open air. And there are pieces of the of the building on fire around them. And the homeless man shows up. 
To grab the box. He grabs the box, and then he turns into this great- He catches on fire. Yeah, he catches on fire first, <laughs> and then it's, he reveals his true form, which is this giant bone dragon, like obviously a, demon, a puppet. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this giant dragon that's just bones. If you've ever skeleton seen- skeleton dragon. If you've ever seen Watcher in the Woods- this reminded me of, it was like a skeleton version of the oh. of the monster at the end of Watcher yeah, in the yeah. Woods. It's so weird that that's where your mind goes. <laughs> if you played any fantasy game, I'm sure you've seen a skeleton dragon. Anyway, and it flies off. And the only thing I can think at this point is, what must Steve be thinking? <laughs> He's just looking for her. He heard she was in the hospital. He shows up. She's gone. He makes his way back to her house, and everyone's dead. The house is collapsing. He's almost murdered by a giant fat guy with his eyes sewn shut before the house can collapse. They open the door. There's the scorpion baby flesh monster. It disappears. The whole house is gone. A homeless man shows up, turns into a bone dragon, and flies away. What must Steve be thinking right now? That acid I dropped. Whoa. <laughs> So the last shot we get is the box in that same windowsill, in that same shop. The same Chinese man And the shopkeeper says, what's your pleasure, sir? Mm -hmm. And credits. So either the bone dragon returns the box to the shopkeeper or is the shopkeeper. It's not clear at this point. But something, it always comes back to that shop. And that's why uh, Frank could find it in the first place. So, but my question from earlier applies, which is when Frank died the first time, why was, why was, why did the box come back with him? Why wasn't it taken by this bone dragon back to this place? Because it happens almost immediately this time. So how long has it been in this other dimension with the Cenobites? Who knows? So that is the story of... Hellraiser, a lot happens in that movie. <laughs> Kelsey. Yeah. Lightning round. So there's a fun story about uh, the after party for the Hellraiser. The production party, yeah. So Doug Bradley is the name of the guy who plays Pinhead. And when he showed up at the party... No one would talk to him. Nobody said hi. Yeah, and he thought he had made some really good friends on set. And so he was really upset. Yeah, and then he realized. And then somebody came up to him and was like, Doug? <laughs> and he realized that none of them had ever seen him without the makeup on. Right. And, and so none of them recognized face. him. Nobody recognized him. He could have just been a crew member or some shit. <laughs> a family member or a friend of one of the actors. <laughs> That's so funny. That's not the only story that exists of that, but that's uh, of of that happening to somebody. But yeah, that happened to to Doug apparently. Oh, <laughs> poor guy. But he was Pinhead for most of the movies. Eventually, they replaced him. Really? Yeah, in one of the more recent ones. Well, that's sad. That's like replacing Robert England. You can't do that. Right, but they did. Well, they rebooted it. That's different. Right, I don't know what happens in the later franchise, though, because we didn't get through the whole thing. So one of the reasons this this film is so unique is because this is the time that Clive Barker was like, I don't like any of the adaptations people have done of my work because he's a writer. That's what he does is he writes stories. And this is based off of a book called The Hellbound Heart. 
So he finally was like, you know what? I want to make this myself. Yeah, we can adapt this into a film, but I'm directing it. And the production company said, okay. And so this is his first, this is his directorial debut, even though it's not the first adaptation of his work. And again, this is based on the Hellbound Heart. And because it's his first movie, he doesn't have a lot of experience. And they were physically filming inside of a real house. So they didn't have cutaway walls. It wasn't a set or anything like that. So they had to deal with filming inside of an area that's not designed for filmmaking. And so that's why you get a lot of close-ups. You get a lot of weird angles because they were forced to do that by the limitations of the set. And so it's, it's filmed in a really neat way by an inexperienced director who was, whose hand was forced into doing some really crazy things to deal with his limitations. And I always love stories like that. You get some really neat stuff when you're forcing yourself into limits and, I can't think of a time when there were curious angles, but that's interesting. It's Overhead shots, uh, zooms instead of tracking in, that kind of stuff. I didn't notice it. Yeah. Uh, there there was a soundstage that was the attic room, but that was just for the FX shots. They didn't actually film any acting in there. Wow. I think all the other stuff I have is kind of dumb, so I'm good. I have some stuff that I think you'll like. Okay. So Doug Bradley and Clive Barker got together to talk about how Pinhead should act, right? How should he play him? And according to Bradley, Barker said, think of him as a cross between an administrator and a surgeon who's responsible for running a hospital where there are no wards, only operating theaters, as well as being a man who wields the knife. He's the man who has to keep the timetable going. That's why he's insistent all the time mm -hmm. and they decided at this point that they were going to make pinhead an x human all the cenobites used to be human yeah and they kind of turned themselves you over. find that out in the second right, right, but or the third but one. that's not in i think maybe in the third one um, but that's not in this first one but they still had that backstory at this point so bradley says a line from one of clive's plays swam into my head I am in mourning for my humanity. At this point, there was no backstory for the character, but I discussed this with Clive, and we had agreed that he had once been human, but whether this was yesterday, last week, last year, ten, a hundred, a thousand years ago, I didn't know. I didn't need to. Sufficient to have that idea lodged into my brain. A perpetual, unconscious grieving for the man he had once been, for a life and a face he couldn't even remember, and a frozen grief. I felt now that Pinhead existed in an emotional limbo where neither pain nor pleasure could touch him. A pretty good definition of hell for me. So that's what's going through Pinhead's head. At no, I'd, I'd much time. rather be completely detached from everything than be in pain. Um, yeah? I'm good. Learn a little bit about Kelsey every day. <laughs> I'd rather be completely devoid of all <laughs> feeling than be in pain, so thanks. The word Cenobite actually means something. They didn't make it up for this. It's a member of a communal religious order. Again, going back to the religious imagery, uh, they're wearing these skirt uh, robes that look like priest robes, but they're tight and they're leather and they're strappy everywhere. It's very Matrix. But obviously way before the Matrix. Yeah. And it's not as flappy like coats. They're right. like robes that are tight around the body. But that's and, what it made me think of was the yeah, Matrix. Uh, totally, totally. And in the book Hellbound Heart, they're identified as members of the Order of the Gash or Hierophants. Mm. But, but Cenobite is the term that stuck. 
I mean, a bunch of stuff was cut so it didn't get an X rating. More violence. The scenes where he digs his hands into bodies were a lot more graphic. Um, there was more nudity. Uh, it is crazy graphic, but it just doesn't look real. There was spanking that they took out uh, between Frank and Julia. According to Clive Barker, Lord knows where the spanking footage is. Somebody has it somewhere. <laughs> and this is fun about the MPAA. So the MPAA has to deal with the fact that they determine ratings, right? And everything is just based on how you feel, which is why the MPAA is total bullshit. <laughs> but it is good to have some sort of guiding principles to inform people of what to expect so you know what's appropriate for the audience, that sort of thing. That's appropriate, but basically what they're tasked with doing is an impossible task, which is why they fucking suck, which is turning feelings and anticipation of what people may be offended by into specific guidelines, which is why in a PG-13 movie you can have one non-sexual fuck <laughs> and still be PG-13. Famously, the movie The Martian got away with two. Because they petitioned the MPAA and they, they said, I guess for the for, they liked the movie so much for the artistic purposes, it made sense that he would say that, but it's not a rated R movie. You see how fucking subjective everything is? It's so annoying, but they give you back like very specific stuff on what to cut. And we hear these kinds of stories all the time. There's that Boys Don't Cry documentary. I forget what it's called. But it talks about the MPAA and what they do, and specifically it hones in on Boys Don't Cry and the type of edits they had to make mm -hmm. for a scene of somebody going down on a woman. But blowjobs are totally okay. They didn't want him wiping his mouth. You know, like, that's that was too offensive. But you could show almost anything in a blowjob. Um, that's not true. Well, what happens is she kind of goes down and you don't see anything. Right, but, I mean, when you Damn see it. a blowjob... You can't, they don't show you semen or anything like that. Right, but you don't see anything. You just get a, a wipe of the mouth and they had to take that out. You get like all the time when a woman comes up from, I mean, even a fucking basketball with the trailer hitch thing. Anyway, doesn't fucking matter. There's a point to this. <laughs> Clive Barker says, the MPAA told me I was allowed two consecutive buttock thrusts from Frank, but three is deemed obscene <laughs> there's see there's lots of that stuff yeah like yeah you can have a thrusting motion but as soon as you cross this specific threshold that's when it's obscene and the problem is with this kind of stuff is everyone's like so certain that obscene means how dare you how could you even think this is obscene it is rated x we will never release this and it's the difference between two and three thrusts like, come on. It's so fucking subjective and arbitrary. Mm -hmm. But they treat it like, oh, of course, this is what decency is. It's so clear. Like, no, it's not. It's absolutely subjective. It's totally arbitrary. And the MPAA sucks. And they're totally secretive about who reviews these movies. Anyway, you should watch that documentary. <laughs> In Bloodline, which is one of the sequels, I think this is the one with Adam Scott in it. Uh, we find out that the lament configuration is also known as Le Marchand's box. Uh, but that that's just a little, little bit of trivia. And that's it. Kelsey, hmm. what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? This is tough. Yeah. I would guess 83. Try 68. Whoa. 
Metacritic 57. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Hellraiser is a classic. That it surprises really me. is. It's very, very surprising. They don't even have a consensus for it, which is really weird. What would you give it? First of all, overrated or underrated? I'd say it's underrated. Absolutely, it's underrated. But what would you rate it? Probably a 77. Really? I was going to go for a full 80. It is very unrealistic. <laughs> That's why it gets an 80. I mean, I can't believe that you can full-on see the fucking dolly behind the monster. It is so good, though. <laughs> it's so entertaining. It's so twisted. It's yeah, so Yeah, no, that's why I'm giving it a 77. It's just, wow. But it is... Yeah. The graphics are sure. awful, and it's it does not, not look real in any a, way. It's not a good movie in the semi-objective sense. It's just so fascinating and remarkable that I love it. 12-year-old me is is so proud right now because it's not scared of a, of a stupid movie like this like, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but this, oh my god, this movie just... It it, it messed with me. Totally. It fucked with me. Uh, but yeah, now that I'm an adult and I have adult eyes, I think Hellraiser could be remade. Uh huh. With better graphics. And I think if they put in some new story elements, it could be really scary. Yeah. I think you could totally remake Hellraiser. Yeah. I mean, like, don't tell it word for word. Give us some new scares. And I think this movie could really frighten people with yeah. the right effects and the right. Yeah. All right. That was 1987's Hellraiser. Before we get into our next movie. Kelsey Slash Cards. Name four horror movies that feature paranormal investigators. As a as a horror comedy, does Ghostbusters count? Yeah, I'll accept it. Because the second one scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. I won't go. I'll get one for that. I won't go to the, any of the different variations. The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. Insidious. Mm-hmm. Does Supernatural count? <laughs> TV show. I know, I know, I know. Do you think that the Blair Witch Project counts? Because they're making a documentary. Their, their, their specific outcome that they want is a documentary, but they are investigating tales of witches in the woods. A witch in the woods. I guess. I'm going to say it counts. That's four. <laughs> What are the recommendations on the card? Poltergeist. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. The Conjuring. Yeah. Something called Grave Encounters. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. And The Innkeepers, which is on our list as well. Oh, good, because I've never seen that either. Mm-hmm. Kelsey? Hmm. True or false? Hmm. You give me name for horror. True or false? <laughs> Your body burns more calories when you watch horror films than when you watch regular television. False. True. According to a study by the University of Westminster, there you have it. Scientific proof that scary movies are good for you. Cool. <laughs> cool. Of course, I'm sure not sitting down and watching a movie would be better for you. <laughs> All right, moving on. We're going to talk about 2015's We Are Still Here, written and directed by Ted... <laughs> Listen, it's G-E-O-G-H-E-G-A-N. Joffigan? Maybe. 
Sorry, Ted. I don't know how to pronounce that. Starring Barbara Crampton, Andrew Sensenig, and Lisa Marie. Kelsey, what is We Are Still Here About? I don't know yet because we haven't watched it. That's right. So I'm just going to read the description that's on IMDb and hopefully it'll pique our interest. We are leaving tomorrow. Oh, we're keeping this in? Yeah, that's fine. Oh. We are leaving tomorrow on our trip. And so we're recording this bit beforehand. This episode isn't actually going up until the weekend after we get back. So we're doing the first half now. We haven't seen the second movie yet. No idea what it's about. I've seen it. but I What the fuck? But I saw it a couple years ago. I don't remember much about it, but I remember. Oh, I remember this one. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I remember this one. I can't tell you. I feel like maybe I thought it was kind of dumb. I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember. Oh. Listen, this description peaked my interest, and it reminded me as well. So maybe I'll think differently this time around. I don't know. But here's the description. In the cold, wintry fields of New England, a lonely old house wakes up every 30 years and demands a sacrifice. Yeah, but I don't remember anything about that. I just know that I've seen it, and I thought I liked it. That makes me sad that you didn't like it. I remember something that happens... And I don't want to say it on this recording because I'm sure it is a spoiler. Okay. So this movie is available to Amazon Prime and Shutter subscribers. You can rent it for as low as $2 on other services and buy it for 8 We cannot make a recommendation one way or the other because we don't remember this movie. But it only came out three years ago, so maybe that tells you something. But I liked it. But I... if you can watch it for free on Amazon Prime or Shutter, if you're a subscriber... Watch it with us. Mm -hmm. We'll see how it goes. And when we get back, we'll talk about 2015's We Are Still Here. I know you think it's silly. But I really can feel something here, Paul. So what are we going to do about it? What if Jacob and May came up for the weekend? She told me once that people pay her to do seances. This house has an energy all its own. We don't need to find the darkness here, Paul. It's everywhere. You're not leaving here. You stay, you satisfy the darkness. Every 30 years or so, the goddamn place just wakes up. And it demands new blood. Kelsey. Mm -hmm. What happens in We Are Still Here? So I'm going to give a little spiel about We Are Still Here. Oh, let's. We should probably also set up first that we just got back from our trip to the British Isles. Uh, it's literally it what it's called. sound a little more tragical. It's it not is. supposed to. It's what it's called because we included <laughs> Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. It's not part of the UK. It's not part of Britain. It's when people think of Europe, they think Italy and Spain and Germany and stuff like that. They don't think of Ireland. Um, so yeah, we went to the British Isles <laughs> and we haven't recorded in like two and a half weeks. Yeah. So 
Uh, we might be a little out of practice. I don't know. We might have a completely different tone. I don't know. But we came back, we watched this movie, and now we're ready to record, and Kelsey has some thoughts. <laughs> Go ahead. So we had both seen this a while ago. At some point, apparently. At some point. I was under the impression that I enjoyed it. Chris was under the impression that he did not enjoy it. And I think we both are kind of in the middle now. Yeah. It's not terrible. Um, I have, I have s- no idea what we said as far as a recommendation. Right. If I were to, if I, if you were to ask me now, I would say if it was free and it was on TV, sure. Did we actually make a recommendation? I don't remember. I should probably listen to what we recorded and see where we left off. We might not have gotten that far. We well, might have paused. That's early. my recommendation. Okay, well, hold on, hold on. So we did. We did do a whole recommendation thing and all of that. So you can continue. So after seeing this movie this time... Yeah. I have so much respect for movies that try new things. Try different things and unique things. I have a lot of respect for those types of movies. And I feel like this movie really was trying... To do something different. Sure. Which is hilarious because we just saw this movie Hereditary. Okay, we'll talk about Hereditary at the end of the episode. Right, but I'm saying it now because I'm saying that this movie tried something new and then I'm Uh going to talk about Hereditary, which basically tried to do the same thing but did it way better. So this movie was definitely going for atmospheric, moody horror. Right. And... I'm not a huge fan of that. I have a lot of respect for it. I think it can be beautiful. I think it can be intriguing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it engages me. Does that make sense? I think so. Like, I can appreciate it. It's like when I look at art. I look at art and I think, that's really gorgeous. I'm ready to move away from it now. Right. Like, I am not one of those people that can just sit there and stare at a piece of art for forever. And I feel that way about atmospheric, moody horror movies. It wants me to just sit there in awe of it. And I can do that, but for only so long. And it holds on those moments for way too long, and there's way too many of them. When you have that in a movie, I feel like it needs to be poignant. It needs to be occasional. Rare. So that's but that's where that's where the movie for me I feel uh, actually stood out because I I have written in my in my comments here I know we haven't really gotten into the plot yet but I I think this is worth talking about the film takes place in the seventies which took me forever to realize because there are little things that I thought that's weird yeah that's kind of strange why would they choose to do that and then it. Finally hit me when we met the hippie couple, which almost saved the movie for me. Yeah, they are great. fantastic. They are fantastic. That's right. They are awesome, but they don't quite save it. But they almost do. But anyways, it wasn't until I saw them that I was like, "Oh my god, it's the seventies!" Right. But I was thinking while I was watching it, I'm like, "If this takes place in the seventies and they're so committed to that seventies style." Why isn't it filmed like a 70s movie in the same way that House of the Devil was, right? And that was really, really effective, right? But ultimately, 
it's kind of a gimmick. The end of the movie does get that sort of film grain. But the more I watched, the more I noticed ways that it was filmed like a Dario Argento movie. And it had these odd framings and stark walls and tripod shots and zooms. And it, it did certain things that felt very 70s. But kind of like you said, heredity does hereditary does too, and it does it better. Mm-hmm. It does it like way better. Yeah, and I think where this movie really lacks, where it just drops the ball completely, is the writing and the acting. Yes, everyone in this movie is a bad actor, in my opinion, except for the father. And the husband of the hippie couple. Oh, I think the father is a terrible actor. Oh, no, but he's fun. Like, I think he's a great character. He's a cute character. Yeah. He's not a good actor. No, 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 no. See, everyone else is actively a bad actor. (laughs) They're just bad at acting. And you don't... It's not that, that, oh, well, he's not a believable character, therefore he's a bad actor. That has nothing... That has nothing to do with his acting ability. Uh, It has everything to do with the type of character that they were trying to portray. Unless all the other actors and actresses are playing characters that behave like bad actors in their everyday life, they failed. And that's what makes them bad actors. Whereas it seemed like the objective was for the husband to behave this way. And the objective was for the hippie dude to behave that way. And I thought they were very successful in that way. I disagree about the father. That's fine. The husband. And the writing is so bad. It's so cheesy. But anyway, the movie also, it's just trope after trope after trope. Nothing about this movie, when it comes to pure story, is different. Nothing about it is new. It is a billion classic horror films all put into one movie. A big problem with this movie is that story-wise, just basic premise, every single thing comes from a classic horror movie. It is just trope, 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 trope. And that's really bad in my opinion. So, okay, so let's, let's go through what actually happens in the movie. Let's take this as a jumping off point to talk about what happens in a movie. Uh, a couple is moving into a new house in a small town, kind of in the middle of nowhere, snow everywhere. Because and of the death of a child. Their, their child recently died. And Typical so, horror trope. Yes. So they go there to live, to get away, to get a fresh start on life. And the mom starts thinking that she's feeling her child there. Um, they run into an elderly couple who talk about the original owners. The original owners, it was a funeral parlor, a funeral home. And what was happening is that the owner was not burying the bodies. He was burying empty caskets and selling the bodies to what he refers to as the university over in Essex County, which, by the way, is a reference to uh, Miskatonic University, which is a fake university in the H.P. Lovecraft universe. So that puts us in a, you know, supernatural sort of mind. Anyway, the city finds out, the townsfolk find out after having built the place for them themselves, and according to the old man, runs them out on a rail. What actually happened is that they killed them by setting them on fire in the basement. 
because they are an offering to some evil gods. No, the evil gods comes later. The evil gods comes later after that happened in the 1800s. The 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 evil comes back every 30 years. Mm-hmm. Which is straight out of? It. And several other things. It's a very cosmic horror sort of thing, which is what it is. If you listen to our it episode, we talk about what the demon uh, that Pennywise is, what it actually is. It's a cosmic horror. It's this thing from from the universe that represents evil. That's kind of what happens here. And it comes back and it terrorizes the town. It causes droughts and uh, sicknesses and things they like that. They have to give it a sacrifice. Unless they sacrifice which something Which is what for it. the burning of the family was. No, I think that's what summoned the – I think it started the sacrifices. No. They sacrificed the family because they had all these troubles coming about. That's what they do every 30 years. Right, but the newspapers only go back so far as the first family. No, There's no it trouble showed us before something that. before. It did. I think we'll have to say we don't know until <laughs> we can look it up and we're not going to do that right now. Write us and tell us if you know. So in any case, they they did something horrible to this family. And... See, that's why, like, that's what summoned the evil, is the evil thing they did to this family. No, as far as I understood it. Because what is, the, what is the evil? What is the evil that kills people all the time? It's the family. So uh, They use the family. That's what he says to him. He's like, I'm really thankful for you because you're here to do the dirty work. We don't have to kill people every single year because you're here to do it. Yeah, every 30 years. You're the people that we sacrifice other people to. Because he's, yeah, he, he stays there. They stay there because they're so angry. They're yeah, angry see, spirits. I saw it. Another trip. I saw it as kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street. What they did, what the family members did, the town rises up and lynches somebody. And that is a very evil action, despite the fact that they're seeking justice. It's the same thing as what they do to... um to Freddy Krueger. And as a result of the horrible things that they did, that's what brings upon them these plagues and these droughts and these awful things as punishment for the evil thing that they did. Otherwise, where the fuck are these plagues and droughts coming from and why? Because there's an evil that lived under under this house. Now, the movie is a little muddy about whether or not they originally summoned the evil to give them riches, or if it was simply there and it started to cause all this heinous stuff before they gave it a sacrifice. It's muddy about that point. Right, because it doesn't help the fact that the source of this information tells them a story that's fake, right? right? And so you got to remember how much of that is coming from that. That part is a little confusing, but what's definitely not confusing is that the evil simply lives under that house and every 30 years it comes out and if it doesn't get a sacrifice, it causes problems for the town. So they give it a family to sacrifice. So I don't know if they conjured it up for wealth and riches or if it simply existed. That part I don't know. But I do know that it's every 30 years it wakes up and they have to give it a family. A lonely old house in the fields of New England wakes up and demands a sacrifice. They didn't build the house until the family. It's like The Shining. It's built on ground that is... Or poltergeist. This is what Wikipedia says. 
This ends up with Jacob becoming possessed by the spirit of Lazander Dagmar, who reveals that they were never run out of town. Rather, the villagers used him and his family as a sacrifice to the evil under their home. But that doesn't fucking make sense because the home didn't exist until this family. That's why this this fucking plot is nonsense. Yeah, I'm, the plot is dumb. That's so nonsense. We agree on that. That's why I'm saying it's weird. No wonder it, I made up my own story because what exists there doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's muddy. Ugh. So anyway, they find out that there's this family that lived there, and they weren't run out of town. They were actually killed, and now the d- sacrifice is demanded every 30 years um, to prevent awful things from happening to the town. And the mom still thinks, though, that it's her son that's trying to communicate with her, and it is as well. It's that too. Like They brought the spirit with them, is what the <laughs> hippie couple says. Right. And so... The hippie couple comes. Oh, and their kid and his girlfriend are going to come, too, because the kid was the dead kid's roommate in college for a little bit of time. They just needed another set of bodies to kill so they could up the death count. (laughs) Um, So the hippie couple shows up. They go out to, to eat at the bar. The hippie couple's kid and his girlfriend show up, and they see there's a note there. Oh, you can come and eat at the bar, or you can stay and eat here. And... The girlfriend, who was creeped out by the story that the kid told her. Mom says Miss Sachetti thinks that Bobby's uh, with them in the new house. Thanks for the invite. Is like, no, I'd rather stay and eat here. I thought you just said you were creeped out by this place, and now you want to stay here? I just want to relax. Let's just eat here. Oh, we need it, because that's what's convenient for the story. I'm sure this place doesn't freak you out. And they go inside... And then they get eaten by by the Dagmar family. The boy gets eaten. The girl runs out, gets in the car, and drives away. And then gets a hand punched through her And suddenly, stomach. magically, they can leave the house, yeah. which is never explained. Uh-huh. And the car kind of drifts over into a bank, and they never find it. Uh, so as far as the, the adults know... Those kids just never showed up, but they have more important things to worry about because the couple feels a great evil in the house. There's a real power in this house. It's a heavy power. Something that was born out of decades of secrets. There's a darkness here. I don't feel Bobby here. It's something that wants you to believe it's Bobby. What does that mean? This house has an energy all its own. You said you knew how to contact him. Annie brought you up here to find out what was in this house. Paul. No. May, you can't give Annie all this hope and then not deliver on anything at all. We don't need to find the darkness here, Paul. It's everywhere. And then they go to sleep. That's the last thing they talk about is how evil this place is But go before they go to sleep for the night. Because they needed dream sequence scares and it doesn't make any sense that they would just fucking go to sleep now. At Anyway, whatever. They wake up the next morning. The, the, the two women go into town to buy some stuff and the, the men have a seance. And the hippie dude gets possessed Uh, The dad ends up, the husband main character guy ends up tying up the hippie dude. Yeah, the hippie guy does a really good job here, I thought. so good, yeah. Yeah. He's really, yeah, him 
Him and his wife. His wife is a little She's silly. She's not but, that great. But. but I love them together. I love the yeah, dynamic they they're really have. Cute. I, because if you don't, if you didn't actually watch the movie, he's kind of a, a slightly overweight, balding, 70s mustache type. And she's like this really attractive hippie girl who doesn't care about looks. She just loves her husband. <laughs> like, it's really kind of cute. They're really cute together. Yeah. Um. So anyway, he's possessed. The women come home and guy's like, oh, we actually did a seance even though you told us not to. And now he's possessed. And so they're all freaking out. Dude rips himself out of the chair that he was tied to, stabs himself in the eye with a hot poker and collapses. Uh, after telling them that your son is dead, we killed him. Yada, yada, yada. That was actually a really cool moment when they're having the seance and the and the hippie dude was talking about my dead son's here and the, the Husband is like, you mean my son? It's like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, I'm asking my son to join us. My son. Bobby, my son. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm... Sorry. Sorry. It's like, no, your dead son's here, too. Like, yeah. yeah so it, that was pretty interesting. And then as they try to get out, the old man shows up with a shotgun and the kills the hippie comes. chick, and the whole town comes because they need to prevent them from leaving. They need to make sure these people are killed so that so the house gets its sacrifice. And something that's really interesting uh, that Chris hasn't really mentioned yet: for some reason, the Dagmar family is taking their sweet ass time in killing these this couple. Which surprises the old guy, because he's yeah. like, wait, you've been here for two weeks and you're still alive? Yeah, like, uh-huh. what's happening? And he even has a conversation with the Dagmars, and he's like, what the fuck? Are they special or something? And they never explain it. I assume it's because the family feels sorry for the couple because they lost their son. Yes. But that's not made and clear. And the son's there to tell them that, but the son tells them to get out. Yeah, and then he, like, says hi, Dad, at the end. I don't I don't know. Yeah, and so... Story's dumb. <laughs> right, he says hi, son, or whatever. Yeah, he says, says yeah. hi, son. He goes, hi, Dad. Yeah, uh-huh. And they, but when they're all running around, because the townsfolk are there trying, trying to, to get them, them, but the Dagmar is are are killing, killing them. everyone and, like, pulling them into the stairs and into the floor and some really kind of cheap effects. Lots it's, of tropes. It's, yeah. Uh-huh. Lot, there, I mean, you can they're, think of a bunch of horror movies where you're walking up the stairs and you get pulled Because up to them. this point, up to this point, four people have died. The hippie son and his girlfriend... Uh, the dude commits suicide by sh- hot poker through the eye. Not a hot poker, just a poker through the eye. And the hippie woman gets a shotgun blast to the head. And now they have a ton of people the that they can kill in any way they want to. teenage girl at the bar died, too. Oh, right, because the old man killed her. But the whole plot line at the bar doesn't even fucking matter. So <laughs> so they just need to, sh- to have – this is when they go all out. In the last act, everything's fucking happening. And finally, everyone's dying. <laughs> the – Old man is having a conversation with the Dagmar patriarch. And like Kelsey said, he's like, what's taking you so long? We have an agreement. You know, we give you sacrifices and you kill them and we're all good. And that's what needs to happen here. So get your ass on it. What in hell is going on? Huh? These folks been in this house two weeks and they're still alive. Why? Something special about them? You wanted this house so bad, you were willing to kill for it, so we just let you. 
Having you here made every sacrifice after you a hell of a lot easier. Whatever anger you had that kept you here, I am grateful for it. But you know what has to be done. You know what you're supposed to do. Now get it done. Like he is pissed off about this until dude like grabs him by the head and shoves yeah, his Dagmar's fingers in like, the eyes. You. And he's like, you know what? No, I'm going to kill you. That would bring me more happiness uh, because it, you people, this town, you're, you're what's wrong with this place and kills them. And that's what allows the family to get out. But they don't leave. They don't leave. Because their son's there. Yeah, they And they're see- all going to live happily together. I don't fucking know. It doesn't make any damn sense. Yes. So apparently, I mean, we get the sense that because they got justice, like they they get sated, right? The spirits get sated every time there's a sacrifice every 30 years, right? But I got the impression that this was really what they were looking for, is they were looking for justice. But the evil under the house doesn't give a fuck about that. No, I'm saying that's what it does. Is it is it once that that's why I'm saying it doesn't make any sense <laughs> because then the spirits of the family like disappear. They go away. And for all we know, they're just going to be gone for another 30 years because they got their sacrifice, but they go away. And because they know their son is in the house, they stick around and she goes into the basement Then he follows her. And when he goes in, he says, hey, Bobby, or whatever it is. Hey, Bobby. That's the end of the movie. And then we see a bunch of uh, newspaper clippings showing us the history. The history of, the of all the, the shit that <laughs> happened. Yes. All right. So that's what happens in the movie. We've talked a lot about our general thoughts. Kelsey, any lightning round comments? I don't really care enough. Um, Nothing about this movie, like, super stood out to me, except for, like I said, the... The moody atmosphere that it was going for, I appreciated it, but when you hold too long on those shots and when you have too many of them, I find myself looking at the clock. Yeah. And other than that, and other than the the hippie couple, which were really cute and pretty funny, and the the hippie husband is actually really fucking good. Yeah. Other than that, I didn't think this movie had much to no. offer, and I don't really find the need to get into the nitty-gritty about it. it. Let me put it this way. It's not bad enough for me to want to just rip it apart. No, it really isn't. And it's not good enough for me to want to talk about all the good things. Right. So. <laughs> I talked about it uh, in another episode, the inverse parabola, right? At the lowest point is like a zero, Right to the left are are negatives as far as quality goes. Right, left and right is quality. Um, so to the left it's bad, to the right is good, and then going upwards on that axis is how much you enjoy it. Right, so the worse it is, the more you enjoy it. The better it is, the more you enjoy it. And if it's a zero, it's the lowest amount of enjoyment. I wouldn't say it's the lowest amount of enjoyment. It's just kind of Yeah, it's nothing really. Yeah. It's um, very meh. Which is kind of a which is kind of a bummer. Uh, I'm gonna get a few things out. I I just have a few things to say here. The movie's not very subtle. Dave has this great comment about, oh, I'm glad you're here. This house needs a family. 
And it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah. He has needs of family. And I, and I picked up on it the first time he said it. But later on, the wife says, oh, you heard what Dave said. This house needs a family. It's like, just in case you didn't catch it, we're going to say it again. Also, the, wi- the wife of the old guy's note. The right. house needs a family. Yeah. Get out. Yes. <laughs> There's also a few exposition dumps. We learned the 30 years thing when the old man, Dave, is talking to the bartender lady and he tells her he just does a big exposition dump halfway through the movie or so or at the end of the second act, if you consider it to be a three act. And he just dumps all this exposition on somebody who should know it already. The whole point, the reason you killed that young girl when you came in is because she shouldn't know everything. You're talking to the bartender lady because she does know everything. Why the exposition dump? The darkness under that house wakes up every 30 years like clockwork, and it's hungry. If it doesn't get a new family this time, it's going to swallow this town. And then, later on, when he comes back into the house, he tells the demon another exposition dump. And the demon definitely knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, like... If you're going to do an exposition dump, it's like a Bond villain telling Bond their plan. Why do you care if he knows you're just going to kill him? Like, it it doesn't make any sense. We know you're just doing it for the audience's sake. I can't believe you got me monologuing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it it should happen naturally, right? It should happen as part of the story, as part of natural interactions. You shouldn't be forced into exposition. You should find clever ways right. to give that information. Right. It shouldn't be forced into an exposition dump told to a person who should already know it. It's like in Seven. Now, this is a very simple way to give information. Morgan Freeman is much smarter than Brad Pitt is. Mm-hmm. So, every time the audience is like, hey, wait, huh? Yeah. They get to say, oh, my God, Brad Pitt, you're a fucking moron. I'll explain it to you. Right. Right? It's a very simple way of doing it. There are movies that do it better, but that's the first one that came to mind because that's a clever, easy way to give your audience information is to have a character who doesn't have the information and gets it from someone else. But the problem is, kind of going back to the Bond thing, is the characters who don't have the information are the characters that are going to die anyway and don't need the information as far as the people with the information are concerned. So So how do you get that information So you have to find a better character to give information. Like, one way they could have done it is through the hippie chick... Mm-hmm. learning information from the ghosts and explaining it to the family. Yeah. I think it would have been really interesting if the if Dave, the old man, talked to the bartender lady and to the demon in ways that a person who already knew the stuff would talk to them. You know, like making references to things that aren't explained. So it's not an exposition dump. And then after the end of the movie, we get those newspaper clippings and we can put it together ourselves. Mm-hmm. That could have worked too. You got to have faith in your audience, though, and this movie does not have faith in its audience. I mean, those two ways we just listed are the most obvious, easy ways to do it. Right. And we're not even trying, you know? If we spent time trying to figure out a more complex, interesting way of doing it, we could. But we're not making that movie, and these people who made this movie didn't bother. I'd also like to play, as the last sort of thing to say in the lightning round for this movie, the, the very fun game... Of movies that don't think this sort of shit through or don't want to. And so they end the movie early. The game is called What Happens Now? (laughs) What the fuck happens now? 
in the storyline, everyone in the town is dead. Except for the new couple <laughs> that lives in this house. No, a couple of them ran away. Remember I said that? Right. What the fuck happens now? You got the couple that came and then their <laughs> dead bodies. Do you just bury the bodies? Yeah, I know. Like, no. what do you do now? Yeah, you can live, but I'm surely there are going to be questions. Well, think about how they handle an it. It's simply that the, fa- the, the town looks the other way. Right. But when there are 30 people dead, that's when, like, the FBI get involved. No, they say the same thing in it. It's just that it's such a small town, and the evil consumes the, the town, so nobody goes poking into it. Nobody pays attention. That's, that's all they have to say in it, and we accepted that. Then they should say that here. Yep. I mean, we know there are newspapers, so somebody's reporting yeah, right? on it. right? That is the big difference, is that in, in Derry... It's all hidden in the books in the back of the library, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, anyway, that's a fun game to play <laughs> if you're watching a movie and, and there's a bunch of chaos at the end. It's the what happens now. We can play that with a movie we would like to talk about in a moment. So, Kelsey. Yeah. What do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? 39. No. Way lower. It's Metacritic rating. Yeah. Is 65. Whoa. Now, what's the rule? Usually, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's a good rule of thumb. But with uh, the relationship between Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic scores. Rotten Tomatoes scores are usually further out from the center than Metacritic scores are. So if a Metacritic score is over 50... Right? The Rotten Tomatoes score will be even further over 50. And same thing for under or over 50. So, Rotten Tomatoes score is over 65. New guess? 72? 95. How many reviews? Hold on. Smart, powerfully acted, and devilishly clever, we Are Still Here offers some novel twists on familiar territory what? and heralds the arrival of a major talent in writer-director Ted Jojen, or however you pronounce his name. I couldn't do it in the last half of the episode, and I can't do it now. That is insane. Out of 43 reviews, 41 are fresh and two are rotten. That's nuts. Showcase from The Hollywood Reporter. Showcasing juicy performances by its actors who tear into their stock roles with admirable conviction. No, watch the movie again. It is full of bad actors. Wow. Wow. We Are Still Here has a long, slow fuse that sets off a wallop of a climax. I mean, that's fine, I guess. Um, The LA Times, once We Are Still Here unsticks itself from homage mode, it finds something cathartically funny inside the fearsome. Yeah, I mean, it's funny the way all those men keep, like, getting, ah, and then pulled down. And, yeah, I mean, I guess I can see that. New York Times is one of the rotten ones. Uh, Helen T. Varangas, We Are Still Here will make you scream and make you laugh and possibly leave you speechlessly gesticulating at a charred zombie-like ghost in the background. But the peak moments are too few. Good, yes. I mean, yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, we said that in the beginning before we were reading these reviews. There's a lot to enjoy. It's not that we didn't like the movie. It's just that it's kind of nothing. You know, there are some really good moments. 
especially hippie dad. He's really great. But like, what is there? It feels, it feels thinking back on it. Like it was a 30 minute movie. (laughs) Like that's how substantial this movie feels. (laughs) That's nuts. Yeah. I'm in disbelief. What do you think the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is? 4,501 ratings. 81? 48%. Thank you, God. (laughs) What would you give it? So definitely overrated. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. Maybe a 50? I'd give it a 60, I think. I think it's good enough. I think the fact that we're kind of upset that it wasn't better tells <laughs> us that it was kind of good. Yeah. Right? It could have been bad, and we wouldn't be upset that it wasn't better. You know what I mean? My lowest score for this movie would be a 45. My highest score for this movie would be like a 58. So I'd go with 50 in the middle. Okay. And I'll, I'll go with 60 and we'll meet at 55, I guess. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Like I said, if it's on TV and it's free, fucking watch it. Yeah. Huh? But yeah, see it. I don't I wouldn't go out and pay money for it. No. Listen, if you want a modern hip cool horror movie, watch like the Insidious or Conjuring movies instead. Watch House of the Devil, which is <laughs> way better than this if you want a movie that's trying to be a 70s horror movie. Well, House of the Devil's 80s, but. It's like 78. It's like early 80s. Uh, late 70s. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up here, we did want to talk just a little bit about Hereditary. We just saw it. Non-spoilery thoughts. And then we'll wrap up the show and talk a little bit spoilery. No, I don't want to spoil it until we do an actual full review of it. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to forget most of the stuff. Are you going to want to see it again when it comes out on DVD? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that tells you something. Kelsey, what did you think of the movie? It's okay. I thought it was good. I thought it was incredibly acted and incredibly directed. Yes. Uh, there were yes. There were very intense moments. The where- kids were okay. Acting wise, uh, you know the everybody talks about Peter, how great the little girl is. No, Peter uh, was great. The old, the older brother. I thought he was really great. Um, uh, he was a little over the top. I can crying. see that. I can see that. He's crying a little over the top. I can see that. There are definitely, absolutely moments. I, I said this to Kelsey afterwards when she was feeling a little bit underwhelmed by the movie. I was like, "Well, there were moments in the movie that I saw reactions out of you that I have literally never seen before." I felt the same way. There were moments where like something would happen and my jaw would just be open and it would just stay open (laughs) because what happens, it's not that a lot of stuff like continues to happen one right after the other thing. It is a very slow movie. So you go into this movie, know it is very steadily, slowly paced and it begins to ramp up towards the end. Uh, I, yeah, it, the first it, it, hour or so is just a family drama. Yeah, 
uh, you forget that it's a horror movie halfway through. But well, um, well I was gonna say, I was gonna say that like so when a when a shocking thing would happen, then like the next few shots, several minutes worth, I would still have my mouth open. Right. And I'd be like, oh, shit, I haven't even closed my mouth from before because it it puts you in a place emotionally and then it keeps you there. No matter what's happening. And I'd like to talk about what those things are, but we will talk about that when we actually review the movie in an episode. Yeah. You were going to say. I was just going to say, Chris talked about how it's a slow moving movie. Yeah. It for me. It is a combination of The Witch and Rosemary's Baby. She came out of the movie and said that right out of the movie, and I I 100% agreed with her. I mean, I thought about Rosemary's Baby, but I didn't think about The Witch, and in retrospect, having heard her say that, I was like, you are 100% right. I think it's a combination of the two, and that's not to say that... I think, I think if this movie was just a family drama... I would have walked out stunned. Yeah. The horror element of it works in moments for me. Yeah. But not when you put it all together. When you put it all together, it's a really, for me, it's a really weak horror movie. And again, it's atmospheric and moody, which is not my type of horror movie. It so, doesn't work for me. Okay, I disagree. I think a modern movie that's like that, it doesn't work for you. Not to judge you. This isn't a judgment. It's just something I've noticed. You have this tendency to like something, and then if it's if you get that something again, you don't like it. <laughs> it's not a judgment. It, there's nothing wrong with that point of view. When she sees things, there's this fine line of, oh, I appreciate that as an homage, and you're just copying what somebody else did. <laughs> and a movie can really tip over the edge like that. And I feel like that's what happened here. It does things maybe even better, but since other movies had done it before, you appreciate it way less. Perhaps. It is a 70s horror movie. Yes. It is 100% a – if you want to watch a Dario Argento movie, there was not a trailer for 70s, Suspiria. <laughs> not 70s in content – or no, 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 no. It takes place in modern day. The stuff that happens is modern. It's all style. Or in, but don't say style. It's in the cinematography. Yeah. It's in the the long atmosphere. Yeah, the long shots. The, not in, yeah. not in like. That's that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Because when everybody, whenever you bring up Dario Gento, my first thought is color palette. And this does not no, have that in any absolutely way. Absolutely doesn't. Although it does play around a little bit with the color red, but I think that's overblown. I think it's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Kelsey's right. A, a little bit of a warning there. That's why if you watch the trailer for Suspiria, which we did right Ooh, beforehand. I'm excited. It looks so good. I hope. Because we really like the original Dario yes. Argento movie. Yes. And it looks like it's a good homage to the first one. Which we original. were going to do Suspiria. And then when I found out that uh, they're doing a remake, I was like, well, we got to wait. Yeah. So it'll probably be, be like a, a, <laughs> a year or so before we actually do Suspiria. But it, we were going to do it this summer, but we're not going to. Right. Now. Yeah. Because now there's a remake of it. Mm -hmm. and we can do a double feature. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't go so far as the remake to Suspiria appears to go. 
in its 70s style. Mm. But for things like you say, uh, cinematography and uh, tension building, uh, the length of the shots, the the fact that there are a lot of tripod shots, there are zooms, very very slow, deliberate zooms and wonners. Wonners like you wouldn't believe, not like crazy elaborate set pieces that I can't believe they got that in one shot, but things like, huh, they haven't cut in a while. You know, like those sorts of things. It is incredibly tense. Yes. I will give it that. Yeah. So. Not necessarily scary. Should people see it? If everything that we've just said sounds interesting to you, Yes. Yes. Yeah. But if you I don't, think... if you don't like slow build, and you don't like the idea that an hour into it you're going to completely forget that you're watching a horror movie, <laughs> so true. Then don't I literally see it. looked at my watch, not because I was bored, because I know that's a key indicator that you're bored <laughs> is when you're looking at your watch, but because I was like, nothing horror has happened in this entire movie. <laughs> How long has it been? And it was an hour into the movie. Yeah. Before the first thing that's slightly horror-like Well, happens. no, there's a couple of supernatural things at the very beginning, but they're not scary in any way. Yeah, and they're super subtle, and you could write them off as, as, as elements of a drama. Exactly. Yeah. So It feels like a whole family drama. And if it had just drama. been a family drama, I would have been stunned, as I said earlier. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, we've talked about this way too long. Well, it, it's a, better than we are still gonna here. Do, we're going to do we a are whole do. episode. We are going to do a whole episode about it when it comes out uh, on home video, which might be soon because it's really not doing well. Um, really? It's critically it's doing gangbusters, but commercially it's not doing well at all. And you could tell because Tony Collette and Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne are executive producers. And when you need your stars to fund the movie, it's probably because it couldn't get funding on its own. And the stars believed in it enough to help fund it, which is good. And it says good well, things about Collette the movie. Tony does that. She I know. puts herself in movies that most people probably wouldn't think were Right, but your good. two main actors, your two stars are, are funding the movie. It's because people who are in charge of the commercial end of the business recognize that it wasn't going to do well. And people who are in charge of the artistic end, i.e. the actors, not in charge of, but are part of the artistic end, really believed in it. So that's why it's doing critically well, but commercially poor. I would like to end with this note. Yes. I am thoroughly concerned at this point that Horror is going in a direction that I do not like. Jesus, why? We are still here. The witch. Hereditary. hereditary mother. The slow, ponderous sort of. Yeah, but you also really, have. Really, really worries me. But you also have the James Wan style, which is completely different. But it might be dying out. You think? I don't know. I feel like this Aren't is they making up. another Annabelle movie? Oh, God. <laughs> well, there's always going to be shit horror movies. That's not going anywhere. Right, but that's from the Conjuring series, so obviously hey, that's doing well. we don't acknowledge that. <laughs> it might as well not be a part of it. I agree. Wow. Okay, so... Yeah, we've been talking way longer about You're gonna this. You're going to have to edit this down. ...that we did about We Are Still Here. All right. So... 
that is the episode. Next week, Kelsey, what are we watching? I think you're going to be really excited. Okay. We have a double feature next oh, week. Oh, double feature. All right. It's been a while since we did one of those. Evil Dead. Woo! I am excited. I have not seen the remake, but I've heard nothing but good things, and I love the original Evil Dead. Now, for those of you that aren't too familiar with it, there is a difference between Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. If you don't know them well, the famous one is Evil Dead 2, so we should probably get that out of the way right now. Famous and popular one. Evil Dead is is shorter. It's a much lower budget. Um, it's a little bit more, it's not as silly. I'm just going to say this right now. Watch both. Yeah. Watch. I'm both. really excited to see the remake because it looked like over the top as fuck. And I, I, I thought I was going to hate it. Yeah. And I really liked I'm it. I'm surprised you liked it. Actually. I really liked it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Really excited for the evil dead double feature. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com, where you can browse all of our episodes and a list of every movie we've ever had on the show. That has since been updated because it was not in our absence, uh, but we've we've returned and I updated it. You can also leave a comment there under any of the episodes. You can share your thoughts on the episode, the movies we watched, or recommend one or two for us to watch in a future episode. As a reminder, Brian recommended Hellraiser. Thank you very much, Brian. Also, he recommended The Puppet, Puppet Master, Master. Yeah. Which I would like to watch, but without, like, I know what The Puppet Master is about, but without forcing myself to look into it too far without ruining it. What would be a good modern movie to pair with it? I can't think of anything. I can't Something find anything. Something made in the past So if anybody years. has any ideas of a movie, like Chris just said, that has been made in the last 20 years that you think would be a good pairing, please let me know. Yeah. What was the pairing theme here, by the way, Kelsey? An evil that requires a sacrifice. That was very thin. Well, I didn't exactly <laughs> remember what We Are Still Here was about. Okay. Because it leaves so little of an impression on you. Yes. It's true. But they both are evil entities that require a sacrifice. Sure. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. Please do so if you want to recommend something. You want to just tell us what you think of the show, any recommendations or anything like that. Or you can follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. I will add comments there sometimes while I'm editing an episode. Kelsey will uh, live tweet random horror movies. The last one we did was The Open House, which was garbage. <laughs> um, and now she's off for the summer, so... Maybe she'll get some more opportunities to do that. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice, as always. So until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Kelsey, do you have any parting words to share with the audience? If you cheat us, we'll tear your soul apart. to the
This week, 1987's Hellraiser, and I forgot what the other movie is that we're doing. It is a it is a car that's driving down the highway, <laughs> just being a drama, and then and then it gets into an accident and becomes a horror movie. He took that out of American Ultra. <laughs> I did. I wasn't even thinking about American Ultra at, at all. But that's a very good point. That metaphor is in American Ultra: <laughs> the car that's just driving along and a tree that's been there for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. <laughs> It's just there, and this car is driving, then it runs into the tree, and the tree stops it dead. It's another good movie that people should see. <laughs> it's okay. Um, <laughs> why can I think of the dude's name? I just said it earlier. Her, the husband. The Irish dude. Yeah. Who pops up occasionally, and you wonder how he still has a career. <laughs> oh, boo. <laughs> Seriously, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of his career is Little Women, and he's in that for all of ten minutes. So, what does that say? Wow, his career. <laughs> you don't think of Usual Suspects? Oh, that's right. Gabriel Byrne, by the way, is his name. <laughs> um. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> what was that? That was Lavinia. right. Was that her mouth? <laughs> She's like sleeping and she did like a snort, like <laughs> in her sleep and she stretched. That was <laughs> oh, that was so adorable. And she's looking at me like, what? <laughs> you are so cute. Ah, uh, come to daddy.